Welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton and I'm your host. It's an honor and a privilege to have our good friend, American hero, Commander Paul Galanti, back with us today to discuss more of his experiences from Hanoi during 1966. In this episode, we discuss the Hanoi POW march that took place not long after he arrived at the Wallow Prison. I've attached a short YouTube video link in the description of this podcast episode that shows the Vietnamese communist parading our POWs in the streets of downtown Hanoi while being punched, kicked, and abused by the Vietnamese people. Although you can't see Paul in this video as he was in the back, the video gives you a good feel for the events of July 6th, 1966. Make sure you watch that YouTube video before or after listening to this episode. So let's get right back to it. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. One of the first things that I think is really important to establish um, and to continue forward from our last conversation, when you got shot down in June of 1966, um, it took 12 days for them to get you uh, up to North, uh, to Wallow in Hanoi. And during that 12-day period, it, it, was, it was a rough time for you. And when they finally delivered you to Wallow, you had injuries. Uh, and can you talk through what that looked like for you? I know when you ejected from your plane, you were going too fast. So you had injuries that you sustained from that. You talked about you got shot, I believe, in the neck. Uh, as you were coming down in your parachute. And then during the 12 days, I'm sure they were mistreating you as well. So by the time you got to Wallow and they threw you in your cell, what what was your physical condition at that point? Okay, I came out of the airplane, uh, emergency situation. The thing had, I had to disconnect the hydraulics. The airplane had snapped over and uh, it started going down. I ejected almost immediately, and uh, the canopy comes off, uh, this big rush of air, and uh, uh, deceleration from about uh, 500 knots, you know, 560 or 70 miles an hour, and um, into this wind. The parachute popped open, snapped me, uh, braced up, and I, I was very close to the ground, and I was swinging up like this, and I felt a sting on my neck. There were tracers all over the place, shooting at the other airplanes in my flight, and um, and uh, they were had a helpless feeling hanging in the parachute. I knew I had just a few seconds till I hit the ground, and I got I felt a sting. I didn't think about it then; it didn't hurt. It just felt this little sting, and uh, hit the ground in a big uh, lump. And I didn't realize it then. I didn't realize it till after uh, uh, a few minutes later when I had, had to surrender. That uh, I'd been shot in the neck, and I had blood all over my neck and flight suit, and uh, and so anyway, there I was. And this kid uh, came up with the rifle, and he was shaking like a leaf. And I said, "I just got to calm down, buddy." And I put my pistol down on the ground, put my hands up, <clears throat> and uh, and I didn't have time anyway. All the rest, they all came up there and, and, and wrapped me up, and I saw the airplanes heading back out over the water. And uh, it was probably a, I figured at the time it would have been, be there more than two or three months, and which you know was, that's what it seemed like because we were really pouring it to them, you know, quote unquote. Yeah. And um, it turned into a long, a little bit longer than that. Yeah, but I didn't know. I'm not sure. It's probably good that I didn't know at that point because I was an internal optimist the entire time I was in Hanoi. I figured six months to a year. And everybody, every new guy that came in said, how long are we going to be here? So, you know, six months to a year. Yeah. And, uh, and I kept going all the way up to the guys in 72 were shot down. 
and they said six months to a year. So, so when uh, they, so you, you, you had some injuries from the ejection. You, you got, you, you got shot in the neck coming out too, or, or some kind of shrapnel in your neck. Was there anything left in your neck or did it kind of, did it go through there? And, and no, it just, it just burned the skin and, and it, you know, but, uh, it must have it hit something with a lot of blood because there was blood all over my okay. lower neck and oh, my flight suit. So, so by the time they 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 took you prisoner, and then after the twelve days, and they got you to Wallo, and they threw you in the cell for the first time, where you talked about last time, <clears throat> they threw you in that cell and they left you there, and they really forgot about you for three days, probably because it was just after uh, we started bombing downtown Hanoi for the first time and so they forgot right. about you for three days and you're sitting there in your cell um how are you feeling what what's your physical condition how how beaten up are you at that point well I was I mean I was not in good shape but my uh I was feeling pretty good that I knew there were Americans in there as soon as the guard closed the door um they started talking to me and <clears throat> But they didn't come back. And then and about an hour after I got there, there's a big air raid siren. And then the air, this anti-aircraft fire, and, blah, 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 blah. and, uh, and it, all these jets roaring. And so that was the first time I'd been on the receiving end of a bombing raid. I'd been a, a lot more fun if you're when you're the guy dropping the bombs than the, uh, the one on the ground getting them. And it was it was wild. Uh, none of the bombs hit in the camp, but you could still hear them going off. All, it seemed like all around. Uh, but they hit the Hanoi Petroleum Storage, which was a huge complex, and a lot of black smoke coming from it, and sirens, and this big PA system that uh, covered the entire city of Hanoi. They were screaming and yelling, and something in Vietnamese, but they were obviously not very happy yeah. with what was going on. How, how close then, uh, do, were those bombs? How close were they coming to you? That, that, I, I couldn't tell. I was inside the, the prison. They were loud, I and mean, I could hear them. Uh, but we didn't have any flack or anything or any, uh, I take that back. You can hear tinkles coming down. That's just the flack. They shoot the anti-aircraft guns up and explode. And the pieces of flak come back down to the ground. Yeah. And I could hear them tinkling on the, on the roof, but, um, uh, they weren't, um, that close to the camp. I wasn't, I wasn't worried about that anyway. But I was just there. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know if I was going to be there forever or, uh, this is just another stopping off point. Yeah. Um, well, so, so you, you got, you're in there and, and, and they forgot about you for those three days. And, and so you were telling me before you actually had to make a decision to get their attention because you were in there for three days. You had no food, no water. So you had to get their attention to try to get that. And, and when you got their attention again, um, that was then really the first time they started to mistreat you pretty badly there at Wallo, well, correct? I was, I was banging on the door trying to get their attention, and the guard really looked surprised when he opened it. I was in there. And uh, uh, so I, I, that's the only thing I can presume is there were a bunch of us in there, three guys from my ship, plus another friend from Lamore from a different ship. And uh, Robbie Reiser came in there just a little bit later. They were bringing him back for some something they had in mind for him. And uh, uh, and so it was, it was like old home week. I was and I listened to everything, picking up all the lore, but uh, I didn't have any interrogations or anything. They didn't call me back in, and uh, I could it smell food out there every couple of times a day, and uh, uh, and but I didn't get any. And so uh, after three days, that's why I, was, I mean I was really hurting by then. Uh, I wasn't in physical pain, but I was just. Very hungry, very hot, sweaty, dirty, filthy, and uh, there's something wrong here. And so I, I started yelling and banging. It didn't take long after the guy discovered I was in there that uh, I kind of almost wished I hadn't done that uh, because I was within a half an hour or so I was in an interrogation uh, cell with the first English speakers I'd encountered since capture. Yeah, and do you? Who was the uh, so? Did you get tortured with with the ropes at that point initially, where they pull your hands behind you and and pull your? How did that first episode? Uh, go? Not initially. 
I mean, they knew what our code of conduct was. And so when I finally got an English speaker in there, I said, what is your name? And so I told him, he said, what is your rank? And I told him, you know, Lieutenant United States Navy, what is your uh, uh, date of birth? I told him that. And uh, what is your serial number? I told him, so it wasn't Social Security number then. It was, <laughs> it was the old Navy. Uh, uh, so Social Security wasn't nearly as big as it is now. But anyway, so I gave my old Navy file number. And uh, that was it. And the last, next guy said, are you married? And I said, I can't answer that question. And uh, the, the interrogator looked at me. says, you don't understand. You must answer all my questions. You are a criminal. You must... You're not prisoner of war. You are a criminal. You must answer all my questions. I said, I can't answer that question. And the, the, the guy, he just very carefully stood up and looked at me, and snapped his fingers to the guard, and the, the guard came over and banged me, and, you know, knocked, knocked me back down so I was sitting on the top of the stool and then started uh, putting the ropes on. and took his time doing it and banging me in the head every few minutes. And... Uh, he put the robes on, and he didn't speak English. And he kept, and he's grunting at me and pulling on the ropes again, make them tighter and tighter. And they cinched them up around my elbows, up up above my elbows, and pull my pull them back till they touch behind my back, which is not that's not a natural position. And I was in pretty good shape, but I still that was not um, something I realized. And so he, he just he walked off and left me. And then finally, after about. A half hour, 45 minutes. I mean, I was really, I don't, I don't feel pain a lot. Uh, and that's not, uh, I think I'm dense or something, but I, I have a very high pain tolerance. And this kept getting worse and worse and worse. And finally, I looked down and my hands were turning black in the bottom of my arms. And, and I said, uh, this is not good. So I started yelling and yelling and yelling. Finally, the guy came back and opened the door. And then came the English speaker again with him. And they loosened the uh, the ropes around my arms, and uh, he says, oh, you, "You have decided you need to you need to uh, confess your crimes." I'm not confessing anything. And he said, uh, "What is your name?" I said, "I told him what is your rank, what is your serial number, what is your date of birth." I told him that. He said, "Are you married?" I said, "I can't answer that." And he snapped his fingers, and the guard put the ropes back on, and they went away. And this time they didn't take the ropes off. After about a half hour, so I started screaming and yelling. And they came back, but they didn't take the ropes off that time until after I'd answered more than right name, rank, serial number, and date of birth. And uh, and I was lying, and I wasn't sure what I was saying. I don't remember what the questions were, but I was really feeling bad because I could not do it. And, yeah. Uh, and so it was, a, it was a rough time. But anyway, after... They answered two or three questions. It turned out, it occurred to me, I'd been shot down a week. I wrote the schedule for our squadron. At that point, I just learned how to move into operations for maintenance. And uh, I was writing the schedule, and I didn't know what the uh, uh, missions were until after the last plane landed the day before. They kept that in the intelligence spaces. They knew it, but they didn't tell. They didn't give it to any of the pipe people who might get shot down until after it was moved. And there were no more in the schedule. So I, I, mean, I had no idea what was happening the day after I got shot down. This is six days later, seven days later, and I didn't have any idea what was going on. And, and so I said, how do I know? I don't know the schedule. I, I wrote the schedule. I didn't know what it was. And uh, they said, uh, uh, you must tell us what is, what, what is your next target. I don't have any idea. So I didn't know they were going to bomb Hanoi, and here I am. And, and uh, I assume we're in Hanoi. I said, you never, nobody ever told me where I am, but I assume I'm in the big prison. And uh, he said, but I didn't know where I was going to be. I was going to not be within 25 miles of Hanoi. And, uh, and they knew that. That was been, been put out internationally. And uh, uh, anyway, they kept going. Finally, I said, and then I started, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You keep asking these questions. I don't know. I just got shot down. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. How many, how many airplanes in your air groups. I don't know. I never counted them. And, um, and he said, how, who is your captain? I said, Captain, I'm, I'm only a Navy lieutenant. I don't know that kind of stuff. And then they, they brought out the stuff from you know somebody else had signed out. They knew exactly the captain of the ship and the XO and the uh, air group commander and the squadron commanders. And and um, 
they knew what squadron I was in because part of my uh, Hanoi skydiving thing when I ejected, I had a knee board on with a bunch of papers on it. Right. You know, and they had every one of those papers there in front of them. And I, I know they came down, they blew all over the place, uh, but they seemed to have you know, my frequency list, the squatter name. It's on a, a mimeograph piece of paper. And, uh, and so I knew they had a bunch of that stuff already, but I still said, I, I don't know. I, that's why I had those knee boards. Because so, I can't remember anything. I'm just a dumb pilot, and uh, and they didn't they didn't believe it, of course. But on the other hand, it, you know, he must be kind of dumb to go flying through all that flak and get shot down. <laughs> and so that that worked for a little while, but um, but it didn't take long. I, I never consciously told a lie in my life after that time. You know, I went to a military school for high school, and uh, a, a horrible honor offense. There was no no sanctions. You just if you committed any honor offense, you get threw you out. Right. And the Naval Academy, Naval Academy was like that when I was there. And <clears throat> I just, uh, <clears throat> it was it was a rough go. And yeah. I, I, I got two things going. I I didn't want to lie, but I didn't want to tell these bastards anything. Right. And so I was stuck between this rock and a hard place. Do Do you remember the name of? of the individual that came in and put the ropes on you and did that initial torture as, as I've talked to POWs, uh, certain names come up again and again. Do you remember any of those names? Well, the, the first one, <clears throat> and I was with him for that whole interrogation was the camp commander, uh, for Wallow at that point, we called him the bug. He looked crazy. And you look at, he had eyes that went different directions. And uh, he just looked like there was something wrong with him. And a uh, very, very, very nasty guy. And then there was a guard, uh, Big Stoop. Or, uh, uh, we had a couple of names for him, but he's as tall as I was. I was 5'10". And he was easily the tallest Vietnamese I saw the entire time in the camp. And he was the, the torture sergeant. He was an enlisted man of some kind. They never wore their uh, the epaulets for their rank. When they were around us, so it could be the camp commander, or it could be the commander of all the camps, and we learned to distinguish them by their face. But they never wore ranks with us. And I found out later, we called him the Bug, and he was the uh, the camp commander for Wallow at that point. Okay. Did you ever come across a guy by the name of the Rabbit? Was he one of the guys that did any torture? Not then. Later. I saw him. He spoke English better than any of the other. I mean, he still had, he had learned it from books, and it was patently obvious. He tried to be cool and use slang and stuff, but he always used them the wrong way. Right. And, and uh, you know, do you, I think I think he's the one. One of them one time said twenty three skidoo. <laughs> so what the hell is he talking about? That's some slang from the twenties uh, uh, in the U.S. And I think it meant let's get out of here. So I don't remember what it meant, but right. he, he used that. It cracked me up into the. I got a you know punch in the chops for that one. <laughs> uh, and and he, but he, he was very proud of his English prowess. And he in fact was. We came home. He's he's the one your dad said. He went up to the, the Air Force Colonel up there and said, "Hey, that's the guy. That's the freaking rabbit." Said. Get his name is that's the son of a bitch in the story. Like, yeah, Dick, yeah, Dick. We don't get on the airplane, just get on the airplane, shut up. Yeah, the, the <laughs> colonel told my anyway, dad to get moving. He was ruining the release at that point. We but got yeah. big, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. We know, Dick. Come on, get on the airplane. Yeah, the rabbit. I mean, he was one of the guys most responsible for my dad's torture. Um, but so, um, during, during all this torture, they had found out. On your way, I think it was, on your way to Wallow, they found out you spoke French uh, because you spoke to somebody during that 12-day march from where you got shot down to Wallow. You spoke to somebody in French trying to see if you could get some kind of help. And so they knew you spoke French. Did they try to get you to speak to anyone for propaganda purposes that early on in French, or did that all come later? You know, that was the first episode when I went in there. Uh, I was coming through one of the villages. There was an old guy that all the villagers kept coming. Villagers kept coming in and they're throwing stuff at me, and I was in a little hooch. And uh, and this old guy said, "Well, you know, Vietnam was a French colony." 
said, I bet this guy speaks French. And uh, so I asked him, he nodded his head. And so I just told him, he said, you get me out of here. He gave me the water and a boat. And he said, you'll be handsomely rewarded. And he kind of looked at me and he got this smirk on his face. He looked kind of like Ho Chi Minh. He had a little wispy beard. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, that's not Ho Chi Minh. Uh, and he said, I'm the cadre for this village. I didn't know what a cadre was, but he was a communist party member in the village. In other words, everybody in the village reported to him. Oh, boy. Said, that's, that's not going to be possible, and you're not going to get anything uh, from that. And so, Right. Uh, um, anyway. So he, he, he wasn't uh, down and, for helping you. He, he didn't want to give you uh, any help for sure. No, I, and I'd had, I got an interrogation. I, I, I'm clear exactly in my mind right now whether it was before I met him or afterward, but um, they had the, the fellow that came up asking me questions, he was a pointy talkie, and it had Vietnamese on one side and English on the other. And he'd say something and point to it in Vietnamese, and I was supposed to understand what it meant. And I just acted like I didn't know how to read. And uh, and, and so I, mean, I got beat up a lot, but they, I, I, don't, I gave him what your dad and I used to call a reserve salute. <laughs> what, me? Well, me. Yeah. And, um, so and you're so. you're arriving in Hanoi at uh, at a time where there there's quite a few things going on. You you got to the Wallow Prison right when they started, uh, right when we the Americans started bombing uh, in downtown Hanoi area. Are the military targets there? And then soon after that, soon after you got to Wallow. Uh, the Hanoi POW march took place uh, July 6th of 1966, and that's a really significant event uh, that took place back then. Can, can you talk about um, how they got you ready for that uh, in, in the day or two leading up to the Hanoi march? Did you notice things changing? Did you feel like they're getting you ready for something, or did that kind of sneak up on you as a surprise? What what yeah, happened? Uh, it was in the pretty close. Days? Yeah, pretty close. Just the day of the march, uh, it was at night, but in the uh, around ten or eleven o'clock in the morning, I, I was still in interrogation, and they came in and told me to take my clothes off. I had these, these brown, blood-stained um, pajamas on. And uh, they came in and told me, uh, not brown, I had blue ones then. And they weren't bloodstained, but they, they came in and took those away from me and then threw these bloodstained brown pajamas in and told me to put, get dressed. And so I didn't know what this is all about, but I, I figured it was uh, something they put you in before you got shot. And they figured that's what's going to happen to me. And um, they kept telling me I had a bad attitude, bad attitude. You got a bad attitude. And, uh, and that's a good so, thing, by the way, for the Vietnamese oh, yeah. to be telling you, yeah, if they're, if they're happy with you, probably you're not doing yeah. something right then. Right. Yeah. I felt like telling them thank you, but I decided that probably wouldn't <laughs> be a good idea. Uh, but, uh, and so anyway, so I also, I got these bloodstained brown pajamas and then just as it was starting to get dark outside, um, they held me, uh, they, they came over and blindfolded me, took me out of the room and, Walked me down the hall, then they handcuffed me, put one handcuff on me and one on somebody else. And uh, that was Robbie Reisner, who was a senior American POW then that I knew of. He'd been on Time Magazine a year before. And uh, uh, and so, so I went, hand up, they stuck us in the back of a truck of some kind of small a Jeep or a weapons carrier or something a little bit. Uh, I think I, I can really tell, but we climbed up in the back and there was a guard sitting back there behind us. And as soon as we sat down, uh, Robbie Reiser leaned over and said, I'm, I'm Robbie Reiser. Who are you? And so I said, that's that Colonel. That's the air force Colonel that was on time magazine. And I said, I'm, I'm Paul Galani. I just got shot. I just got here. And, uh, they said, yeah, we, we know that knew all about you and everything. And they brought me back for something here. I'm not sure what it is, but he said, I, they've never done anything like this before. And, um, I saw a swell. And so on the, all the way in the Jeep going to uh, uh, the soccer stadium or some kind of a, a athletic field uh, where they, they put us, they let us out of the Jeep and uh, we were blindfolded and they were leading us around. And, uh, uh, and they 
disconnected. And Robbie, in the meantime, had been giving me all the camp lore. And they kept smacking him on the back of the head. And uh, but he kept telling me, talking about stuff and who's camping, whatever, the, the number of camps. And they at the you know, New Guy Village, and they've got uh, uh, Heartbreak Hotels, the one we're in, we were in, and uh, all the other camps that they knew about. And um, and then, uh, but the guard kept hitting him in the head. And finally, when they stopped in the soccer stadium, they got out, they disconnected him and hooked somebody else into the handcuffs with me. And, um, and it turned out, they did was they took Robbie and hooked him up to Ev Alvarez, and they got to lead this parade. And so Ev Alvarez was the first one they captured. And, uh, and Robbie was the senior one. And I, I, I thought I was the last, one of the last two guys but it was hard to turn around and look because every time you turned and started to look around, you get banged on the head. Right. And so, hey, so I'm hooked up to another guy. And I, I glanced out. I saw him. That's Len Eastman. He just joined our ship just before this at sea period to replace another guy who was already a POW. And, uh, he, and he, I don't think he was in the march, but there, about 50 people were in the march, including the, those of us who had been in, in uh, Heartbreak Hotel, the first camp. And, um, uh, and so Lenny, I was with Lenny Eastman, who got shot down the day after I did, but it was he was closer to, to Hanoi, so he got there quicker. And Cole Black was there, POW, and he was he was um, uh, actually uh, shot down. Both of them were shot down directly and indirectly, looking for me. But one of them, they were looking for me when when Len got shot down, and then Cole Black was looking for me and Len when he got shot down. Wow. So it was, so, um, so I've seen a lot of, uh, YouTube videos about the Hanoi March and I was looking for you in that. I, I was real, I, I was never able to find any pictures of in the video of you in there, probably cause you were at the, at the end and I, they were really focusing on most of the pictures in the video on the people in the front of the March. Is, is that correct? I, I don't know, but there was a big truck um, at the, I guess it was the start of the parade that had a bunch of uh, round eyes in it, a bunch of. Uh, I saw that. I saw uh, pictures of the truck. And, and, and they also had uh, uh, Lee, uh, his name, uh, Murphy Jones, Murphy Neal Jones had been shot down on the 29th during that raid. And they captured him, and he was really badly banged up. And they had him in the truck riding into the, in the Hanoi March. I don't know if that's the same truck that was uh, taking the pictures or not. But and when we saw that, uh, by the time we got to that truck, uh, the crowd had already overrun the guards, and they were in amongst us, kicking and punching, and uh, really banging us up. And uh, but uh, they got us. To the back to this soccer stadium, I think it was the same place. He got us in there and uh, you know, closed the door and kept all the uh, the hoi polloi out. And uh, but it was a terrifying experience. And that I I, I said this it's been attributed to other people, but uh, it cracked somebody up when I said I said Jesus, I hope they don't do this every week. Yeah. <laughs> how and, uh, how um, far did that? How long was the march what could could you estimate that was it a mile two miles do you have any idea i, 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 I can't i've thought about that a lot over the years i don't remember it's just there was action the entire time i don't they couldn't have been that long because we're slobbing along when we had those uh ho chi minh uh sandals with a tire tread right and you can tell we had that we had the number 10 ones because some of ours had holes in them where a nail had punctured it and, and uh uh, but anyway, so we're shuffling along with those things. We couldn't go very far. So I, I'd say it's I mean, no more than a half a mile or three quarters of a mile. But there were a lot of people. So as far as you can see, I, I, every once in a while, I'd, I'd glance up and look underneath the blindfold. Oh, I didn't have blindfolds on. You could see. But um, when we were marching, we didn't have the blindfolds. You could just see people everywhere. And, and do you feel like the guard, guards our... lost control? It, it looks, it looked, mm. I, I've watched those videos on YouTube and it just looked like the, the Vietnamese people were just incensed, like they wanted to reach out and kill you. But 
the Vietnamese guards were between the crowd and you, and they, it, it they looked were like petrified. they were losing control. They were petrified. And uh, because the crowd is coming in swinging and kicking and doing everything else they can. They hit the guards a couple of times, and one of the guards went down, and uh, the guy behind him picked him up. And and, uh, and I went down once. Len, Len went down, and you know, just you have to pull the other guy up by his by his wrist. And uh, uh, but it was a terrifying time. We didn't know what the purpose of it was, except they had these political cadres out there with megaphones inciting the crowd, yelling and yelling and yelling. They're saying, son of a bitch, son of a bitch. And, and the, the only English they ever learned. And, uh, 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 and, and it went on and on and on and on. It seems like it lasted forever, but I don't think it was more than an hour. Right. For the march. We didn't go very far, but it, it took a long time to get there. Yeah. And, and so after that, and, and you said they brought you back, probably to the same soccer stadium, got in there and closed the gates to keep you separated from the crowds outside. Um, where did they take you then? Did they, did they take you back to the Wallow prison after that? They, they took me back to Wallow and I think, and, and, uh, and I got in there and uh, I, I just finished interrogations. You know, I said, God, this is awful. It, it keeps going on and on and on and on. And uh, they got me to interrogation because I just, Basically, I think finished the inter initial interrogations, and they they said, "Yeah, you must do something, whatever. Some you admit, admit your crimes, this and, the, and so." Uh, at that point, I wasn't was not in a mood to resist much. I, I made them, you know, forced me to sit down and and take a pen. But basically, they dictated it, and I just, I, I wrote it exactly the way they dictated it. Which sound didn't sound like English. Didn't sound like American English. And uh, I don't even remember what it said. And I never saw it again. But uh, I'm sure it's somewhere, some file somewhere. And uh, and I was really feeling down. And then they put me back in the cell in, in heartbreak. And uh, they brought Len Eastman in. And he'd just gone through the interrogations also, that getting beat up. And he was right smack in the middle of uh, uh, his interrogations. And so, um, but they put us together for a short while. They, they uh, took us away. And I remember if it was then or uh, see, I think I got it out where I put that. Um, uh, I put a, a list of all the uh, camps on my computer here. Yeah, that's what I was going to, the, really the next thing I was going to ask you about. So you didn't know it yet at this point in 1966, but so you, you were going to be there for almost seven years Correct. and they moved you around in those seven years to a lot of different camps. I think you, uh, you told me 10 different camps in total, yes, correct? I, I, I just, camps, I was shot down 17th of June, went to heartbreak, got there finally on the 29th which is the day of the Hanoi March. Um, I'm sorry, that was that was the first day we bombed Hanoi. And then one week later, 6th July, is when they had the Hanoi March. That was there with Robbie Reiser. I went there and handcuffed uh, Len Eastman uh, during the Pride. Len was a Navy lieutenant, I think, then. He'd been with another air group, and he, but he was a bachelor. He volunteered to stick around to finish our cruise after we lost our... Um, we did another F-8 pilot. We lost six F-8 pilots on that cruise, photo F-8s. So it was not a, uh, the, the tactics, the top secret tactics that were to fly over the target at 1,500 feet, wings level, as straight as an arrow, the, the easiest targets the North Vietnamese had. So anyway, uh, had the, um, after that thing was over, they took me to the zoo uh, which is a, a POW camp in Hanoi. And I was, you know, next to Jim uh, Lamar then, who was a senior officer, Air Force officer, a great guy. But I was next to him, and we were tapping to him, and he's filling me on all lore from there. And the next cell over were the two guys that I came up from the South with. Uh, 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 it's an Air Force, retires an Air Force general. Daryl Pyle and, uh, was a, a young first lieutenant, 6'6". Six, six, uh, just towered over everybody. And then um, 
Oh, no block. I'll think of it in a second. Um, that's the trouble with doing this at age 80, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. It's, this it's, is a long time ago. It is okay, a long time. I, but, but I went, went to the zoo uh, in July with that, that thing, and I was only there for about two months. They took me back to heartbreak because a French female journalist for L'Humanité, which is a French communist uh, daily in Paris, and she was a reporter over there. He said, "Oh, we have a we have a one of these animals speaks French," and so I'm sure she thinks I was the worst French speaker ever <laughs> because I was saying "parlez vous Francaise," and I wasn't exactly pronouncing it right. And anyway, finally. Uh, she saw I looked really good, and I kept looking at her forehead. I said, well, you don't look so good. She had a big boil right in the middle of her forehead. I just kept staring right at that boil. <laughs> and uh, anyway, that was not a good experience. But she wrote a book, and I was in the book. Right. Um, and Phyllis actually, Phyllis speaks French. Phyllis was a French major at William & Mary. And she went over to Paris while we were in prison and actually talked to this woman in 71 or 72. So looking anyway, back, looking back on it now, that this is in retrospect now, many years later, you, you do you have any idea why they moved you all, around all these camps, moving you from Wallow to the plantation to the zoo, and then maybe back? Why didn't they just leave people in one place? Just the timing. I mean, I got, um, I was in heartbreak the normal time but at the end of heartbreak they were they bombed hanoi so i got one of the hanoi march and, and came back to heartbreak after that and then they um moved me to the zoo for a couple months but then that's when madeline Rifo, the french uh news lady for the monite newspaper um that's when she came was coming to visit so they brought me back to heartbreak to get prepped again for that and and since i was back there they had me washing uh uh, cleaning up flight suits, bloody flight suits and boots and, and stuff, all this stuff. These other guys are shot down after me or going through all this torture stuff. And, and um, uh, Neil Jones got shot down on the night of the 29th. Um, and he, he was in there for a while. I got his clothes and stuff. And uh, uh, he was really badly banged up. But they, they put him in the march anyway in, in a truck. And, uh, and so anyway, but it just worked out that way. I finished... Uh, um, after the guy came back to Hartbeck, it kept me there for a long time, washing clothes and, and uh, washing the uh, uh, communal stuff, the, the dishes and little aluminum spoons. And um, anyway, I was there for a long time, but I used that to do things among other, like when somebody moved in next door, I try and teach them the tap code and do that stuff. That's where you're, um, uh, I get, that's right. You have, quote unquote, met your dad. It's right. much more important for me to find out the army Navy score than his name. <laughs> so I really didn't know I had talked to it till uh, almost the end of the war. Um, uh, anyway, I was, uh, back in, uh, there's a heartbreak till March of 67. And they took me to Little Vegas, which is a camp inside Wallow Prison. And it was a, the smallest room I was in the whole time. It was four feet wide and six feet long and double-decker bunks in it. And you had about an eight-inch, um, eight or ten-inch wide aisle down the middle to walk around and go around the foot things. But I was in there for uh, uh, a month, I guess. And they took us out to, to me and two other guys, um, it took us out to the uh, was a plantation, and it was it just a, it shambles. It was an old French film studio, and it had you know, big reels of thirty five millimeter film uh, everywhere, and uh, it just totally run down. But they were obviously fixing it up. That was the camp they used later for the releases. Uh, they always went to that camp first, and uh, a, it was all clean. They kept it looking fairly nice from the outside. This That's is the, the plantation that. you're talking Correct. about now. Yep. It, it seems like the plantation would, would you call that 
the propaganda camp maybe where they took whenever they tried to do filming like that when they brought in the east german film crews and whatnot was it normally at the plantation yeah it was after a while um i think the first propaganda thing they did there was when the east germans came in from uh to do this story called pilots in pajamas and it's a movie and um your dad's in it. I'm in it. Uh, some other folks uh, uh, were in it that, um, that I've known before. Uh, but anyway, so we were in there, and they, they wanted us to cooperate. I said, "I'm not cooperating." So you, you ask me any questions, I'm gonna uh, tell talk about all the torture and bad treatment. So oh, no, cannot. You must. You must not do that. They said. Besides, they are German. He says, "Good. I speak German too. I went to school in Germany for a while." They kind of Deutschsprecher. The guy looked like he swallowed an egg. He went running out of the room and went over the way. We could see from our this big house, the, the big room that we were in, we could see across the way. And I saw him going over the thing. He's yelling at the phone, going back and forth. And then he turned around and came back to the room. He says, I don't think they will talk to you. If you they don't talk to you. You don't talk to them. Said, okay, fair enough. <laughs> and so that that's the reason for uh, this obviously not so happy camper sitting on the sawhorses on the cover of life magazine. Right. Uh, the, yeah. I, and I want to talk to you about that. And that, so that, that was in okay. 1967, right? Yeah. That June picture. of 67. Yeah. It was taken in June, but it was, it was in the November issue of, of life magazine. And, October, October 26th. Yeah. And I want to talk to you a lot about that next time that the next episode, when you and I get together, I want to talk about, that pilots in pajamas and the the Life magazine picture because that's another really significant um, thing. I I want to kind of finish up today, uh, getting an understanding about how 1966 ended for you. So coming up into the Christmas holidays. Uh, the United States observed a pause in hostilities, and we certainly weren't bombing downtown Hanoi. Was there really anything different for you, the way you were treated or the things that you were doing during the, the Christmas holiday time in 1966, or uh, did things really remain unchanged for you? Well, they did uh, basically unchanged. I was still in that cell in heartbreak, um, washing clothes and, and dishes and, and, and but no interrogations. And um, I was with John Heilig for some of it until I discovered we have a bad attitude when we got together. Uh, but I was in there all the way up till the spring of, where did I put that? I was in, uh, um, it was March of 67. I was in that, that cell. So now we did, uh, we got a you know, special meal, uh, the little piece of turkey with uh, some mom sauce on it and some, uh, what they considered the good rice, the white rice. Right. We normally just, we normally got what they considered number 10, uh, which is hus still on it and all that stuff, which is probably the reason we came out as well as we did because all the vitamins and stuff are in the husks. That's what they gave us to eat most of the time. Um, so anyway, no, nothing happened. We knew they, the Hanoi Hannah was replaced with this uh, alleged uh, Catholic priest who came in and did a mass uh, on the thing, and, and and it was awful. It was sort of like the Bible. The uh, the New Testament is written by Ho Chi Minh, and uh, you know uh, Pontius Pilate was a, a, a imperialist and and uh, the. And, and, and Jesus was a man of the people like Ho Chi Minh. And it just the whole Bible, the whole story, Christmas story, was written like that. It was a bunch of baloney, but we did get a good meal that day. And, right. uh, not very much. I also um, I got about half a beer. Just, you know, it was a little coffee mug with a beer, about two inches of beer in it. That was supposed to be number one. We allow you to celebrate your Christmas. Did, was dynamite. the beer any good, or was it Vietnamese beer? Yeah, it was. I don't remember. Uh, I mean, I, it really, it was so little and so much. Uh, I think it, they could have had uh, 
uh, ammonia and it would have tasted good. Yeah. <laughs> but because everything else, there was no taste to it. I mean, rice didn't have ta- any taste. And the uh, uh, pumpkin soup, was, I guess, a little pumpkin taste, but I never had that before. Yeah. And uh, or, or, the, or the green soup was like kale, kale soup. So anyway, yeah. it was, uh, but it was, it came and went. And I don't remember if that's when they announced that they were going to allow. Uh, we allowed the criminals to get packages from home. I think it was sometime around then, but uh, that was a little bit later uh, when we got the packages. But they weren't really packages. Right. Like, you know, well, that kind of brings 1966 to a close. And um, we're, we're having some bad times right now with this COVID-19 virus pandemic and whatnot. And but back in 1966, you you sure had one heck of a bad year too. That was not a good year for <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was really not the worst year. The worst year came later, and it was really chinning up until until Ho Chi Minh died yeah. later on in 1969. Yeah. Well, next time when we come back and we talk again, um, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about some really significant events in 1967. Um, okay. The, the Life magazine article, the pilots in pajamas stuff that we talked about earlier. And, and I want to talk about the tie-in with my dad, of course. You know, um, my dad was the first pilot shot down after the pause and hostilities. He was shot down January 5th, 1967. And you, of course, were the first American that was able to make contact with him after he had been taken prisoner and after he had been tortured and he was feeling pretty down. And one thing I'm, I'm, I'm really happy about already, and, and I was able to tell you the other day, and I told my dad too, all these years, my dad thought after you contacted him, uh, he always thought you got caught and were hauled away and you were tortured for it. And he always felt bad, but you and I have talked a lot about this and I, I find out now you, you didn't get, I caught. thought he, I thought he got caught. Yeah. And he, and he and didn't get caught didn't. either. So <laughs> I, I just think that's really neat that now you guys both know neither one of you got caught, which uh, I think is fantastic. Well, but I, I mean, I heard the guard, I heard the guard, um, uh, uh, pop his window open. I heard some shuffling out in the corridor. And then I heard his window come open and he stopped. And that, that's when, uh, I, I don't remember if I thumped the wall or he did, but uh, uh, that's usually a kiss of death if they see you doing that because they knew you were communicating. But I never had any any consequence from it at all. But I thought they took him out to an interrogation, and, uh, and, uh, and but I never had any contact. And I didn't know it was, was uh, Dick until I saw him at the plantation. But I didn't know what he was because I never got his name. Yeah. So I, I want to talk to you a lot about that next time. And that's, um, I, I want to let you, my dad talks about that all the time. He tells the story uh, a ton and, and it, it's a fun story to hear about. And it's even more fun now to hear about it, knowing that ne- that neither you nor uh, him got, got caught and tortured because of that. So I, I know you've got places to go and people to see today. But uh, I just want you to know how much I appreciate you, everything you've done. And I love talking to you about all this. It's fascinating. <laughs> so thank you. Well, uh, your, your dad's such a good friend. And you know, we were together on Navy recruiting, and except he was up in the... Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite things about that is when uh, your dad tends to be slightly more conservative than your typical... A New Yorker at that time. Yes. Especially on Long Island. And I remember you guys had come home from school up there and, uh, and they were talking about all this. Uh, the teachers are pushing all this sweetness and light environmental stuff. And and, uh, and I remember the quote from your dad says, you go back and ask your teacher where she thinks the whales go to go pee pee. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I love it. That's that, that that would play well with your typical Long Island Long Islander. No. And, uh, uh, but anyway, but your your dad's a good guy, Patrick. I'm glad to see that you and your brother both of them went Marine Corps. 
um, I can't imagine what it was like for you guys because uh, your dad was such so well known subsequent to, uh, to coming back from Hanoi. Um, and just, just this is just FYI, but the reason he he's absolutely convinced of this, and I am too. When I came back to think about it, you know, the, the Vietnamese had GI Joe also, the GI Joe the American, and GI Joe the American, the cartoon little comic books they had, it looked just like your dad. He had dark <laughs> hair, yeah, he had, he had real short flat tops because none of them have short hair, and uh, and he of course had, had uh, there's a reason your dad's nicknamed the Beak. And these cartoon Americans all had big noses and their eyes were close together, big bushy eyebrows and stuff. That's funny. And your dad looked exactly like the caricature of the Vietnamese G.I. Joe. So oh, I'm sure that these and if the, these uh, guards and stuff were not real compass menace, if that's the right word, uh, they didn't seem real bright. But, uh, but they had little comic books they went around in teaching them how to be good little comrades. And... Uh, and in that was G.I. Joe, Vietnamese style. It looked just like Captain, uh, then Lieutenant Commander Richard Stratton. And, That's funny. And, and anyway, I, I'm convinced, and, and uh, um, I had a long talk with uh, Admiral Stockdale about that one time. And he said he never thought about that, but that might be right because uh, Commander Stratton does look like he could be a bad guy if he wanted to be. He said, you betcha. <laughs> All right, Paul. Well, look, you you have a great day, and uh, it's really good to see you today again. And we'll talk okay. again soon, okay? Okay, Patrick. I loved it. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Yankee Ear Pirate Podcast. I'll be talking to Paul again soon to discuss more historic events that took place in Hanoi during the 1960s and early 70s. You can contact us with questions or feedback by emailing us at theyankeeairpirate at gmail.com. That's theyankeeairpirate, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also visit and like our Facebook page, The Yankee Air Pirate. The page includes pictures and video of the people, places, and things we discuss in our podcast series. Also, please be sure to rate and leave a written review of our podcast on your podcast player. It's an easy way to help us spread these stories. We appreciate all our listeners. Semper Fi.